Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Checkman. Ken Starr, Archibald Cox, Leon Jaworski, Lawrence Walsh, and Robert Mueller. These names are almost as familiar as the presidents they investigated. What does that say about the role of special prosecutors, the power they have, the evolution of their role in history, and how we should view them today? When a lesser-known name, John Henderson, was the special prosecutor pursuing Ulysses S. Grant in 1875, we didn't have a 24-7 news cycle and hundreds of former U.S. attorneys opining on his every move. So once again, the question has to be asked, does an important safeguard of democracy even work in our current political, media, and divisive climate? Of course, the best way to know is to examine that history, and that's what my guest, Andrew Cohen, does in his new book, Prosecuting the President. Andrew Cohen is a professor of law at the University of Arizona. He's a graduate of Stanford Law School and the University of Wisconsin. He clerked for Judge Richard Posner on the U.S. Court of Appeals and has written extensively about the law. It is my pleasure to welcome Andrew Cohen here to talk about his book, Prosecuting the President, How Special Prosecutors Hold Presidents Accountable and Protect the Rule of Law. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Very pleased to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. When we look at the history of special prosecutors, talk a little bit about the distinction between the part of the job that is the legal part of the process in making sure that the president is not above the law and the part of it that is a political process. And one of the things that seems clear in all of these cases, and even when they're all different, is that there is this very difficult line between the legal and the political part of the job of a special prosecutor. The political prosecutor is definitely both a political and a legal institution. But the job of the special prosecutor is fundamentally uh, a legal job. The political aspect uh, of the special prosecutor's institution is uh, more a job for the American people than it is for the special prosecutor himself. The great mystery about special prosecutors uh, is uh, that we entrust them with this awesome responsibility of a powerful person on the planet. Um, But on paper, they're very weak. Uh, They can be fired by the president, the very president that they're charged with investigating uh, at any time. So how is it that uh, an official who looks so weak on paper – Um, could strike fear into the hearts of presidents, could even drive a U.S. president, Richard Nixon, from office. And how people have come to entrust this kind of responsibility uh, to such uh, a subordinate official? Uh, And the answer is that special prosecutors serve as catalysts for democracy. They raise the visibility of allegations against the president and uh, make it more difficult for the president to interfere with the independent and impartial uh, investigation of those allegations because their investigations have such high visibility. How much then rests on, for the success of the process, how much rests on the political skills, the political smarts, the ability to understand public opinion on the part of the special prosecutor? Well, the political prosecutors, or the the special prosecutors, political savvy, uh, is an important part of the process. Uh, And some special prosecutors uh, have uh, gotten themselves uh, in hot water uh, based upon their 
lack of uh, political savvy. Maybe one of the best examples of this is uh, Newbold Morris, a special prosecutor who was charged uh, with investigating corruption in the Justice Department towards the tail end of Harry Truman's final term in office. Uh, Newbold Morris arrived in Washington from New York, where he had a reputation as an anti-corruption crusader, uh, with good intentions, uh, but few political skills, and uh, almost immediately made um, a bunch of powerful enemies uh, by trying to get every high-level official uh, in the federal Justice Department uh, and uh, Bureau of Revenue, which was the predecessor to the Internal Revenue Service, to fill out an extensive questionnaire on their financial history and holdings. Uh, and this got him fired by the attorney general who was so irate uh, at the prospect of being forced to uh, answer this questionnaire uh, that uh, he was prompted to fire the special prosecutor. And uh, a special prosecutor with better political skills, uh, better uh, a better sense of how to navigate the federal bureaucracy uh, and uh, to do so in a politic fashion and uh, been more successful. When we look at the contemporary special prosecutors, talk a little bit about the ones that, that really got it right in terms of understanding this balance and some of those that didn't. Special prosecutors, uh, as I think you've alluded to, have a long history, but the vast majority of special prosecutor investigations have actually taken place uh, since 1978, when Congress, in the aftermath of Watergate, passed something called uh, the Ethics in Government Act, uh, which was designed to create a more powerful special prosecutor who could not be so easily removed by the president. And this act was a kind of response to the Saturday Night Massacre in which President Nixon had fired the first Watergate special prosecutor, and Congress didn't want to run the risk of that happening again. So they created this new system of more powerful independent uh, prosecutors called, or special prosecutors called independent uh, counsel. So most of the recent examples uh, of special prosecutor investigations took place under this uh, statute. Uh, and the two most famous of those investigations are Lawrence Walsh's investigation in which members of the Reagan uh, administration uh, illegally um, uh, traded arms uh, and funneled arms uh, to uh, the Nicaraguan rebels known as the Contras, uh, and uh, the Ken Starr investigation of President Bill Clinton, which started as an investigation of a land deal gone bad called Whitewater, and ended up, of course, as everyone knows, uh, with the Monica Lewinsky uh, affair. Uh, Ken Starr uh, is the typical um, uh, Exhibit A uh, when people look for and talk about special prosecutors who have lost their sense of proportion, have allowed uh, their uh, responsibilities uh, and their judgment uh, to abuse their prosecutorial uh, discretion. Uh, but Lawrence Walsh's uh, lengthy investigation of the Iran-Contra affair uh, led a lot of Republicans to think that independent prosecutors under the Ethics and Government Act had too much power. Uh, and uh, the result of those two investigations was establishment of the new system that we have 
today, uh, which is governed not by a federal statute, but by uh, a set of uh, regulations uh, formulated within the Justice Department itself, which create a weaker special prosecutor. And the whole idea behind that new system, which is the system that governs Robert Mueller's investigation, uh, was uh, to create a special prosecutor who would be subject to greater political accountability. Uh, The basic idea is uh, that uh, the special prosecutor's uh, ability to continue in his job uh, and uh, his ability to hold the president accountable um, should be protected uh, by political pressure to allow the investigation to continue. statutory prohibition on removal of a special prosecutor. And the rationale or the reasoning behind this new system is that a special prosecutor who can't be fired is unaccountable to anybody as a kind of fourth branch of government. But a special prosecutor who can be fired by the president still has a lot of power because the public is not going to stand, at least this is the hope, the public is not going to stand for a president who shuts down an investigation to cover up his own wrongdoing. One of the things that seems to have happened, though, is that we have weakened the special prosecutor and, and, and created more pressures on the special prosecutor, as you talk about, at a time when there is greater media attention to the work of any given special prosecutor. If we look at even Ken Starr, I mean, Ken Starr is kind of the turning point. If we look at those prosecutors before that— They didn't get the same kind of 24-7 media scrutiny that we see today. That makes the process more difficult in so many ways. It's not just media attention. There has long been substantial media attention uh, to public special, to special prosecutor investigations uh, of presidents and their close allies. Uh, And in some sense, media attention is actually crucial to the special prosecutor's uh, ability to do his job president from interfering with uh, or even attempting to shut down an investigation because uh, when the media spotlight uh, is shining brightly, the president is afraid to do those things lest he trigger political consequences. The really troubling recent developments, which have rendered uh, Robert Mueller's position more precarious than that of uh, recent special prosecutors, more precarious than that even of the Watergate special prosecutors, I think, uh, is uh, the rise of uh, partisan media and the breakdown uh, of uh, mainstream uh, media institutions, which are broadly trusted uh, by uh, the American public across uh, the political spectrum. During Watergate, uh, the vast majority of the coverage uh, that Americans consumed of the Watergate investigation came from three broadcasts all of which sought to um, uh, cover political events, basically neutrally to provide mainstream, uh, bipartisan, uh, kind of neutral coverage of uh, the events of the day and were broadly trusted uh, across partisan lines. Uh, But today, many Americans consume uh, their news exclusively or almost exclusively uh, from uh, highly partisan media uh, enjoys uh, lower credibility with the public at large today than it has in a very long time. Uh, and this can make it really difficult uh, for uh, the American people to agree on 
bipartisan or nonpartisan uh, standards for presidential uh, conduct, uh, which it is the special prosecutor's job fundamentally to uphold. To the extent that the determination is relatively recent in this long history of special prosecutors, that the president can't be indicted, what impact has that had on the work of prosecutors? No president in U.S. history has ever been indicted. It's true that the policy, the explicit Justice Department policy against the indictment of a sitting president dates back only to Richard uh, Nixon. Uh, But there wasn't a special prosecutor uh, who came close to indicting a president even before the existence of that policy. Um, And the policy uh, has uh, some fairly powerful prudential or practical justifications uh, that uh, uh, supplement uh, or complement uh, its legal justifications and prosecutor to decide that he was not prepared to indict a president, even though he was not formally bound uh, by the Justice Department policy. Not because he necessarily thought it was unconstitutional, but because he thought uh, that it was unwise uh, and that it would tear the country apart for a special prosecutor, an individual special prosecutor, or an individual grand jury consisting of a handful of randomly selected citizens to effectively overturn the results of a democratic election. The Constitution assigns principal responsibility for the removal of a president from office uh, to Congress and sets up an impeachment process which establishes a fairly high threshold for that removal for a good reason, because removing a president from office reversing the results of a democratic election, which is effectively what the indictment of a president would do, um, is a very dramatic step. What does that mean for special prosecutors? That indictment is not the end game, at least when it comes to the president. Uh, It means uh, that uh, the question of whether the president is above the law is ultimately one Uh, which is going to have to be decided by the American people. A special prosecutor can help the American people hold uh, the president accountable, but he is incapable of saving us from ourselves. To what extent has this notion that seems to be relatively contemporary, at least in, in the way it has been put forth, of the unitary executive and the powers the president has, probably best articulated by Richard Nixon when he said to David Frost that if the president does it, it can't be illegal. Talk a little about that and how it fits into this broader framework. So the unitary executive uh, is a term which is uh, often thrown around, uh, which is a bit too technical uh, to make sense for me to go into here. Uh, But there is a school of thought, uh, and this is not precisely um, uh, related to or a product of the unitary executive theory. But there is a school of thought among proponents of broad executive power, uh, mostly but not exclusively political conservatives, uh, who believe uh, that uh, the president's powers over the executive uh, branch um, give him the constitutional discretion uh, to... uh, exercise supervisory authority over the FBI or the CIA, over the Justice Department, um, pretty much for any reason that he decides 
to do so. That the Constitution makes the president the chief law enforcement officer of the United States, charges with exercising the ex- executive power of the United States. Uh, and uh, from this premise, um, uh, proponents of this view, uh, which at least uh, uh, seems to include uh, the new Attorney General uh, nominee, William Barr, uh, uh, draw the conclusion that a president is incapable of committing the crime of obstruction of justice when he is exercising his supervisory authority over the executive branch. So William Barr, for instance, says or concedes uh, that a president uh, commits a crime if he destroys evidence to cover up his own wrongdoing, and that the president commits a crime if he tries to intimidate a witness uh, against testifying in a proceeding designed to uncover his own wrongdoing. But Barr says that if the president wants to uh, cover up uh, the crimes uh, committed by his friends, or he wants to shut down an FBI investigation because he's worried that it will turn up politically damaging information about himself personally, that that is within his constitutional powers as the president, and it cannot constitute a crime uh, because uh, it is the president and the president alone who is charged with making these decisions about the conduct of federal law enforcement investigations, even if what he's trying to do uh, is to cover up his own wrongdoing. What is the nexus between that and, and the work of special prosecutors as you see it? Well, there are a couple of connections. Uh, The first is that many investigations, including the current one, many special prosecutor investigations, uh, have involved not some kind of underlying serious criminal activity, but also allegations uh, that the president and senior members of the president's staff uh, have conspired uh, to obstruct or interfere with the investigations that the prosecutor, the special prosecutor, is charged with investigating. Uh, conspiracy to commit obstruction of justice was at the center of the Watergate investigation. And uh, the charge which was most responsible for forcing Richard Nixon's resignation, the final straw for Richard Nixon, uh, was uh, the release of what became known quickly as the smoking gun tape. It was one of the secret White House tapes uh, that Nixon was ordered to release by the Supreme Court in the summer of 1974. And it showed Uh, that shortly after the Watergate burglary, Nixon uh, had tried to get the CIA to shut down the FBI's investigation of Watergate for bogus national security reasons. And when this tape came out, uh, Nixon's goose was cooked. Uh, Up to this point, he had retained at least some Republican support in Congress, Uh, several Republican members of the House Judiciary Committee had voted against impeachment. But when this tape came out, the writing was on the wall. Everybody recognized uh, that Nixon had committed obstruction of justice and the Republicans who had voted against impeachment on the Judiciary Committee wrote a public letter uh, disavowing their original votes and saying that if they knew what they knew after listening to the secret, the smoking gun tape, that they would have voted for uh, impeachment. And so uh, this kind of allegation of obstruction of justice has been important in a lot of special prosecutor investigations. Um, historically, there's been a broad consensus uh, that the president cannot exercise his constitutional authorities in co 
corrupt ways. And if he exercises his powers as head of the executive branch uh, in ways uh, that are intended to protect his own narrow self-interests or to protect his friends uh, from prosecution or to protect himself from prosecution or political uh, damage, uh, then he commits a crime and is impeachable on that basis. And that's what forced Richard Dixon to resign. So this has been, these similar charges have been at the heart of at least the public reporting on Robert Mueller's investigation. Uh, your listeners are likely to recall uh, that this whole investigation got started uh, after James Comey was fired uh, as director of the FBI. Uh, and a few days after the decision to fire James Comey, uh, President Trump went on national television and explained uh, that uh, he was determined to fire Comey because of this quote, Russia thing. He wanted to end the Russia investigation. At least that uh, seemed to be the implication of uh, the president's remarks. Uh, and uh, after this interview, a memo came out that James Comey had written close to the end of his tenure as FBI director, revealing that the president had asked him to drop the investigation against former national security advisor, uh, Michael Flynn. These actions by President Trump, or these alleged actions, as they've been reported in the press, uh, bear a lot of similarity uh, to the actions which ultimately forced Richard Nixon to resign the presidency. The president was basically uh, directing the FBI director to drop an investigation to protect one of his close political allies and personal friends. Uh, he then subsequently seems to have fired the FBI director uh, in order to end that investigation of Michael Flynn and others uh, for their possible coordination with Russia during the 2016 presidential campaign. And uh, if this constitutes the crime of obstruction of justice, as everyone assumed that it did at the time uh, that the smoking gun tape came out and Nixon was forced to resign, uh, then uh, we've got a very serious issue here and the special prosecutors potentially onto something very big. Uh, but if uh, in fact, uh, proponents of uh, this broad theory of executive power, uh, like uh, the new attorney general nominee, uh, are correct, uh, then Trump was acting, uh, or any president who did what Trump is alleged to have done, would be acting uh, fully within the scope of his constitutional authority. So that's why these questions uh, matter so much and why they've been so uh, uh, central to the public discussion of Robert Mueller's investigation recently. One of the big problems that we hear over and over again with respect to special prosecutors is how long the process takes. And part of that is just the special prosecutors setting up an office, as you talk about, and getting up to speed. Is that an argument for a, a permanent special prosecutor or a White House inspector general? Talk about that. So it's true that a very common complaint, typically by presidents, under investigation or their political allies is uh, that special prosecutor investigations drag on too long. We've heard that charge uh, leveled against uh, Robert Mueller from the very early stages of his investigation. Uh, and uh, it's important for uh, members of the public to have some historical perspective or context uh, for this. Uh, by historical standards, Robert Mueller's investigation remains today um, uh, shorter than the average uh, special prosecutor investigation, which ends up focusing on the president himself. Uh, and uh, it looks even shorter if we take into account the extraordinary complexity of uh, the charges that 
Robert Mueller uh, is uh, tasked with investigating in this case. Um, uh, it's also true, as you point out, that one reason uh, that special prosecutor investigations um, take as long as they do uh, is that a special prosecutor faces some extraordinary challenges, staffing up an office, uh, getting an investigation uh, started, uh, securing the types of uh, resources and support uh, that are nece necessary to carry out an investigation, since each special prosecutor has to, in a sense, reinvent the wheel, set up a new office ahead of time. Is this an argument for having a permanent uh, special prosecutor? Many other countries do have a permanent special prosecutor or uh, the equivalent, uh, and I think there are plenty of arguments in favor of that system. Uh, there are some also some arguments against that system. Uh, the special prosecutors who have um, uh, a more permanent status uh, and are protected to a greater extent against uh, political pressure lose their sense of proportion uh, in something like the way that Ken Starr seems to have done during his investigation. Uh, and a special prosecutor who has a kind of permanent institutional presence within uh, the government uh, doesn't necessarily have the same kind of independence or outsider status that a special prosecutor is appointed on a particular case-by-case. -case. I'm not sure what the right answer is. I certainly think uh, that there uh, are some sound arguments in favor of having a more established institution and that the risks of uh, uh, Ken Starr-style abuses of discretion or loss of uh, perspective uh, may have been overblown in retrospect and that the risks uh, that a president might in fact shut down a legitimate and well-functioning investigation uh, look a lot more serious in light of our experience over the past two years than they probably did five years ago. And finally, Andrew, do you see, I mean, obviously we don't know how this is all going to turn out, but do you see any changes that might come to the special counsel laws as a result of what we're going through right now? I think it's very difficult to make bipartisan proposals uh, uh, in the U.S. Senate to reintroduce some kind of statutory protection for special prosecutors. The current proposals would set up a somewhat weaker statutory special prosecutor uh, than the one that existed for the 20 years uh, after Watergate from 1978 to 1999, uh, but very much uncertain, even though they've had some bipartisan support. Uh, Republican Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has not been willing to let them come up for uh, a vote. Uh, depending on what sort of end game uh, uh, Robert Mueller's investigation results in, uh, it's quite possible uh, that uh, both parties uh, will be able to uh, draw some common lessons. Another key proposal that we've seen, uh, which might actually have some uh, a greater probability of success, I think, uh, is a proposal that would require the attorney general to release uh, the special prosecutor's report, uh, at least to Congress, if not to the public. Uh, I don't know that we're going to see action on that or are likely to see action on that uh, in time to affect uh, Robert Mueller's report, uh, but I could imagine uh, that sort of proposal uh, passing once the Mueller investigation uh, has reached its conclusion, especially if there's concern uh, across party lines uh, about portions of the report uh, the special prosecutor's report being suppressed by an attorney general who might be looking out a little bit too much for the president's interests. 
Andrew Cohen, his book is Prosecuting the President, How Special Prosecutors Hold Presidents Accountable and Protect the Rule of Law. It's just out from Oxford University Press. Andrew, I thank you so much for spending time with us. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.